Exodus 33 is where we stopped last time. And sometimes it seems that this story doesn't have a lot to do with sacrifices, but it actually has a lot to do with sacrifices. We talked last time about the, the golden calf incident and how Moses sought to make atonement. Blot me out of the book of life, he said. Uh, so if, if you must, in order to take Israel back. And God says, no, I don't accept your substitution. I don't accept you in, in the place. And he doesn't say, and I have someone better. He says, the one who sins, I will blot out. That sounds very harsh. But I think I think we have to unpack this in in the setting in which it is. How how does God get across to people who are stubborn and stiff-necked? That's the issue that we have repeatedly throughout these stories. Hard-hearted, stubborn people. And the golden calf, the incident of the golden calf does change everything. It necessitates a whole lot of things that I don't think God ever originally wanted to have to have. Uh, can you think of things that that were instituted in Israel after the golden calf incident? The Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood, right? And in fact, we talked about that last week. How uh, this uh, this rather sensational statement by Moses to the priests. Uh, that you have ordained yourselves to the priesthood at the cost of, every, of your brother. That sounds pretty, pretty intense. And what do we do with that? But there would have been no Aaronite priesthood, is it possible, without the golden calf incident? See, that's my my sense, and this is this is comes out of my reading the Bible as narrative and believing that the narrative is arranged for a purpose and that everything is linked to everything else, especially in Torah. So the brother, the the uh, Levitical priesthood, is there anything else? The idea of uh, remnant begins to come to my mind, um, even though this is not even close to remnant, it's small, but... Uh, like uh, for example, the that golden calf incident, and those people were set aside, and then from there, um, later on, um, Judah would be set aside out of Israel, and then from Judah, then this small group of people, and then smaller and smaller. So a trajectory is begun. Yes, that's going to culminate in a, a constant calling out of people out of the whole. Anything else instituted after the golden calf incident that you can think of? Looking ahead, like it talks about like they're going to build the sanctuary, and so then with the sanctuary comes the whole form of the temple sacrifices by the Levitical priests. Yeah, what was God's original sacrifice that he instituted when Israel came out of Egypt? Passover. So if it's it's the Passover, that is a communal kind of sacrifice, is it not? I mean, you kill the lamb and you roast it and you eat it. The family eats it. The, the extended family eats it. Every 
everybody that eats it is, I mean, the women eat it. It's not just the men. The women eat it. Everybody eats it. There's, there's no, there's no officiating priest. And there's no, there's no manipulation. The only manipulation of the blood is over the doorposts of the house. So it's very much in the family setting. Now, after the golden calf incident, you have the priesthood doing, moving this to a sanctuary and, and after the, and, and then all these sacrifices, multitudes of sacrifices for this and that and the other thing. It was more than a family though, because, um, if your family wasn't big enough to eat a lamb, you had to combine it with right. another family. Right. You had, a, you had, you had more than just one family. But still, it's family. And, and normally what a family did is make, do it for their extended family, which was a, almost a clan. If the clan was small enough, they could do it with one lamb. So, so my suggestion is that God originally wanted something very simple. Maybe preserve the burnt offerings that, like Abraham offered and, and have just that simple offering with the festival once a year uh, with the blood manipulation and all of that. But when they worshipped the golden calf, what did they do to, with the golden calf? It says they rose up to play. What does play mean? And, and scholars debate that. Uh, the traditional view has been that there was uh, sexual uh, immorality taking place, and that was the kind of play. Uh, scholars now try to debunk that and say they were just playing. Uh, well... Playing, playing as an act of worship in the ancient Near East, I do think had to do with sexual immorality. Because, uh, there's an actual figurine out of Assyria of a woman lying on an altar, what looks like an altar, and a man is engaging her in sex, standing up, and it's very graphic. It's, it's so graphic. I, I got permission from the academic dean many years ago to share this in my Revelation class that I, I happened to teach Revelation just once. And uh, I decided I wanted to share it in the Revelation class because of the horror of Babylon. And, and you know, it, just, it was such a graphic depiction of, of the kind of tyranny over women that this kind of thing had. Uh, and my students were so uh, horrified. That I've never showed it again to, to my classes, but that that figurine has been tried to be debunked. They, the, the argument is that this was a political thing and that it was the king on a wall, king doing this on the wall. Uh, that's very far fetched. When when you realize that this figurine was found in the temple of Ishtar, it wasn't found in a political setting like a palace. It was found in a temple. And, you know, it's true, we don't have hard evidence of this kind of thing going on, but the Bible talks about it. And either the Bible's lying, or it really did happen. Uh, so you have that. And, and what some scholars think who believe that sexual immorality was part of worship is that it was done uh, as an act of sacrifice. Well, who did the sacrificing? Who's on the altar in the picture I told you about? The woman. So what I would like to suggest is that this, this worship of this bull 
it was a bull calf that they worshipped, necessitated God saying, okay, you're going to offer sacrifices. And when we get to Leviticus, it doesn't say, I want you to offer the following sacrifices. Be sure to offer a burnt offering. Be sure to offer a grain offering. Be sure to offer a peace offering. And be sure to offer a sin offering. It simply says, if or when you offer this offering, this is what you are to do. When you offer this offering, this is what you are to do. There really is no command anywhere that says you are to offer this, except for the Passover. Um, I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah 7. This is gonna, we're gonna jump around a little bit more, uh, because the story is long, scripture long, and we will get lost in the maze. Uh, if we don't jump around a little bit. And we'll be reading this again, uh, no doubt. Uh, Jeremiah 7, try verse 22. And Tara, would you please read? Just verse 22? Uh, read verses 22 to 26. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that I may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From that time, your ancestors left Egypt until now. Day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants and the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. Okay, Uh, back to verse 22. You read, For in the day that I brought them out of Egypt, I did not just speak. Does anybody have just or only in your version? Verse 22. Anybody? ESV doesn't have it. No, ESV doesn't have it. That's the one I was using. Uh, NIV is the only version I believe that has just in it. Everything else has just, I did not speak to them, speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. I didn't do it at all. Is that true? When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, did he command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices? Um, Actually not. He, if I understand it correctly, wanted to be their God, their king, their leader, directly. So he didn't instruct them. What he instructed them was to give them the, the verbal law that he was giving them on the mountain, and they said no. Okay, so so what he did, and in fact it, it says this in verse uh, 23, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. That's what God says, not do these sacrifices. So the Passover is not viewed as exactly a sacrifice. It has everything the sacrifices have in terms of typological significance of Christ's death. But there is not 
there is not this command to do the sacrifices. And even when God does command about burnt offerings and sin offerings and all of that, he does not command them to do it. He simply says, you're going to do it, and so this is how you are to do it. So I wanted to make this point clear that is it possible that God never intended the elaborate sacrificial services that he ended up with? The, The golden calf experience really did change a lot of things. Okay, with that in mind now, let's go to to Exodus 33, and starting with verse 12, uh, read to verse 16. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. That's a powerful statement, that what makes Israel distinct from every other nation is that their God goes with them. Uh, All the other nations had to work to try to get their gods to come to be with them. Uh, They built temples to try to get them to be with them. And and consequently, when God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, he's condescending uh, to meet them where they are. God didn't need a sanctuary to dwell among his people, but the more they turned to other gods and distanced themselves from him, the more he was forced to. Okay, uh, Robert, would you please read verses 17 to 23. Yes, uh, and the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the most significant portion of this passage. And it, to me, it sheds light on every other story in the Old Testament And it sheds light, particularly, I think, on the problem of sin. First of all, Moses says, please show me your glory. When we think of glory, what do we think of? His character. You think of his character. (laughs) Just right away, you know, I just, uh, I've heard that so many times, so I just, oh, okay, it's in my mind, yeah. Yeah. But but when when an ancient person thought of glory, what did they do you think they thought of? The splendor and riches of a king. Yeah, the splendor and riches of a king. The the Babylonians actually have a term for this called melamu. 
And malamu meant the radiance coming emanating from the face of deity. And uh, that that radiance was considered to be a fairly harsh, intense light. So when Moses asked to see God's glory, it's hard to know what he has in mind. Does he want to see God's radiance? Or does he think of God's glory as something more more along what Robert has assigned it to? What is interesting is what God says in response. I will make all my, not my glory, but my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And you know that the Lord is a substitute, a poorly chosen substitute in my my view for Yahweh. And I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. Goodness. What does goodness mean? This This should bring us back to creation, the creation story, the first one. Where God said, God saw that it, that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Uh, that's the refrain of Creation Week, and the synthesis of that is at the very end, He He everything He made during the entire week is very good. So it seems like God's goodness has to do with His character. In fact, the word good can mean complete, totality. So it's, it's the God's completeness that is who God is. It is his character. And name has the same connotation. Robert, you spent the last year in Indonesia. Did you encounter, did you encounter anybody having a child while you were there? Um, no. You didn't. I've seen you know, there many some pre- pregnant women, pregnant couples there, but not anyone that had a child during my time there. Okay. Did you ever uh, talk to anybody about the name that they had? Um, I mean, there was a story about someone that that, that a friend told about um, someone's name, and they were looking up the origin of the name. Okay, we we do that, don't we? We look up our. We want to know what our name really means. Um, Zhang, I'm going to pick on you next, and if not you, uh, Charlene, <laughs> uh, the Asians. In Asian culture, you you name your name has significance, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. They they name you after a characteristic that they hope you will embody, maybe. Or? Um, yeah, my name is actually means gentle river. But I didn't turn out gentle. <laughs> <laughs> you seem gentle to me. <laughs> okay, Charlene, I'll pick on you next. Okay. In Chinese culture, uh, they they often name a baby after a characteristic of the baby. Um, yes, sometimes. Um, like my name, Charlene, means little and womanly. Like mm-hmm. I don't think they just chose it for the meaning. Like they like like the name because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's a nice name and also because um, my name started with the letters of my mom's maiden name and so that's why they chose that I attended was blessed to attend a Shabbat welcome service in, in and by the way Jews are Asians so <laughs> uh, so I attended a, a Shabbat welcome service one time where they had a naming ceremony uh, with the baby uh, and they asked the, the couple so why did you name 
this child this name. And they said, well, we named her after her aunt, and her aunt uh, had all these marvelous characteristics that we want our child to embody. Uh, and and so so what I'm trying to suggest is that it's cultural in the ancient Near East uh, to view name as tied to personality, to character, to to who a person is. It's more that way than uh, Caucasian culture is. Uh, we're a little less familiar with that, although my parents are really into that with my name. <laughs> so name and glory both have to do with character and we need we need to keep this solidly in mind as we move through this the rest of this passage he god promises his presence will go with you and i will give you rest and moses doesn't quite believe him so he he unpacks that a little bit if you don't we, we're just not going to make it and then he asks to see his glory sorry i i lost my place so now i'm back now here comes the most important words when he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I show mercy. Where's the justice on whom I will show justice? That's not his character. Now, justice, it, God does behave justly, does he not? But the term justice, particularly as it's used in Torah and as it's used in the early prophets, the books like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, to show justice is to is to equalize things, it is to bring fairness and equity to people, it is to deliver the oppressed, uh, the judges, a term related to justice. The judges were saviors to deliver Israel from the oppressed. Now, and of course, in the process of delivering people, people got slaughtered, right? Uh, the, the wicked were dealt with. But the primary thrust of the word is not punitive. It's not retributive. It is more distributive. Um, but even here, God does not you say, I will be just to whom I will be just. Or show justice to whom I will show justice. And, and we come back to that when we get to 34. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. This is a very important point to nail as we look at atonement and salvation. Why can't human beings see God's face? And live. Does that mean if you get caught looking at God, He'll execute you? Uh, what does it mean? Does it not have something to do with sinfulness being unable to exist, live, survive in the light of His perfectness, sinlessness? Yeah, I, I, I like that. Let's, let's unpack it a bit. If God's, if God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and show mercy on whom he will show mercy, and that's the heart of his character, how could that be destructive? Maybe it's the sin that's the destructive part rather than on the part of God. Okay. Maybe it's the sin. How would that work? 
Anybody here last year when Herb Montgomery came? A few of you were. Uh, he gave an excellent illustration that I want to use because I'm, I'm finding it very helpful. But he, he did it for what is called active, active nonviolent resistance. He, he wanted to illustrate three kinds of resistance. First kind is resist, push back. Someone pushes you, you push back. So he had someone come up platform, happened to be Vern Chesky, and he pushed against Vern, and Vern, actually Vern pushed against uh, Herb, and Herb pushed back, and they were at pretty much a standstill with a bit of juggling uh, because they were pretty equally matched. Then he wanted to uh, demonstrate passive resistance, and so he let Herb push him across the platform. No resistance. Finally, he chose to exhibit non, I should say, active, non-violent resistance. Vern started to push against Herb, and Herb embraced him. And it stopped Vern. I mean, he was in the push mode, and then he was embraced, and it stopped him in his tracks. If sin is is anti-God, it is is the antithesis of his character. It is anti-mercy. It is anti-grace. It is anti-love. Would you agree with me? Uh, John, first, let's just look at uh, the definition of sin. First John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law, is how the King James Version reads. The actual Greek is sin is lawlessness. It's anti-law. We know that in the New Testament, and pretty much in the Old, but you have to deduce it through other lines of evidence, sin or, or the law is the law of love. It is a transcript of God's character. Therefore, sin is lovelessness. It's a state that is hostile and alien to love, to genuine love. So if if a person who hates someone comes at them and they embrace them with their love, what is likely to happen if they are full of hate? They would want to kill them. They would they, it, it, they would be tortured by an embrace. Another way to look at this is to suggest that love is life. Light, love gives life, and hate destroys. And what I'm what I'm suggesting to you is that if God were to embrace his people, that's why he says, my presence shall not go with you, because if, this is earlier in chapter 32, if my presence goes with you, I will consume you on the way. Is that because I'll get so tired of you, I'll just you out? No. I, because you're so out of harmony with me, with my love, and you're worshiping these gods who don't love you, they make you afraid of them. Because of that, my very presence would consume you. Because it's love. And you're choosing death, I give life. And that giving of life actually brings death to you. It would actually destroy you and consume you. Because you're choosing death. 
So what God says to Moses is, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will put cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is a very important concept to understand. In ancient Near Eastern understanding, God's face, or I should say the face of a king, seeing the face of someone was to be in their favor. It was to meet their grace. It was to meet their mercy. It was to meet their compassion. If they turned, if a, if a subject came in before a king and the king turned his face away or turned his back to him, that his officers would immediately cover the face of that man, take him out and execute him. Now, I don't, I don't know of any story where that actually happens, but I do know that turning the face away is a sign of I wrath and I reject you and I want nothing to do with you. But seeing the face, this is illustrated by the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob says to Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. To see his brother's face again is to be reconciled. And, and when David rejects Absalom, he refuses to see his face, means total rejection. You have to live apart from me. If I ever saw your face, I'd be, you'd be dead. I was just going to ask if you would repeat. You said this turning of the face is... Is rejection... It, the turning of the face means that it can mean with a superior and inferior, you're dead. Um, it at least means turning the way of the face, you're rejected, you're, you're in exile from me. So here's what God is saying. My face, this is totally counterintuitive for the ancient Near East, my face is so merciful and so full of compassion that it would consume you. The best you can see of me is my wrath. It's, it's Like I say, it's totally counterintuitive. How could God's mercy and love destroy people? I think it really tortures people who reject it. And I think it's for that reason uh, that Ellen White like, prefers the term for the wicked, the rejectors of God's mercy. If you reject mercy, all you can handle is wrath. There is um, some concept, I don't know if that's the right word, where the wrath of of God is um, simply the handing over mm-hmm. to... So if this is a consuming thing... How, how, do, how does that fit together? If God were to completely hand over the wicked, but not withdraw his presence, his presence is a consuming fire. And his love. And the way, I've had to try to work this out. <laughs> if you look at the sacrificial system, and I'm probably jumping ahead of the story now, but if you look at the sacrificial system, when is the animal burnt up? Is it when it's alive or when it's dead? When it's dead. If that's a type of Christ's death, which is a taste of the final death, then the wicked are consumed after they're dead. 
by the by the the f- fire that comes from heaven. But what I think happens is God reveals to the wicked first their his face. He reveals his love in all its glory. And that ignites in them the resistance, the, the, the anguish, the, all of the things they have stored up. And there's a fire from within that comes out and consumes them. And then their corpses are consumed by the, the glory of God. That's, that's how I've tried to work it out. Yeah, uh, that reminds me right away of Revelations when um, uh, it's a time where Christ is coming uh, and they say, the wicked say, hide us from the face of him who is... Um, yeah, don't, know, don't let us see your way. face. Yeah, yeah, you know, let we, the rocks we can't endure your mercy. I've, I've worked on this for years and, and I, I have a very haunting illustration to use that I think might help us understand it. And that is, I had a, I had a student one time in class where I was I was talking about the fall of Ma- of Adam and Eve, and I did it in experiential terms: uh, the loss of love and trust in God, the the suspicion they had now of God's character, the the kind of paranoia they had, and the fear and all of that, and how they were now alienated from His love. Uh, a student came to see me. And I happened to know the, the past of this student. This student had been rejected, and I'm, I'm camouflaging the story because you don't know with this being recorded where it could go. Uh, the student had been rejected, well, had had a parent leave him when he was a young boy, old enough to be aware of that rejection. And the parent would not contact all the rest of of this child's life. The parent would not contact him, Uh, would not celebrate his birthdays. And I knew that he had a huge deficit of love. And and his step-parent loved him greatly, but it was very hard for him to connect to that. He came to my office after the class and he said, I felt like you were talking about me this morning. I'm having the same situation with my girlfriend and um, I I just want to talk about it. And maybe I pushed too fast, but I invited him to accept the love of God into his life in a, in a very real experiential way. And he couldn't do it. It was obvious to me that to him... To embrace the love of God unconditionally, fully, in total, was to open up all this well of pain and suffering he had had to endure that he had shut off from his emotions in order to carry it around. And it was obvious to me that he was so... It, that love made him feel weak and vulnerable and ri- it would risk him. He would have to risk trusting again and maybe being hurt again. And so he w- he couldn't do it. And he, he, he just wouldn't do it. And shortly after that, I pled with him and he walked away from my life. I don't think I ever saw him again. 
because shortly after that he left PUC and he became very strongly, rigidly conservative. The kind that keeps the rules, that does does all the good and right things and believes all the proper things, but doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. And I think of that and I think that what has ha- what happens to us as, as human beings and as sinful human beings, we get wounded by life. We get hurt by people, by, by things. And our tendency is to respond with resentment and pain and hardness of heart. And in order to deal with the pain, we keep, we keep being tough to it. Toughening ourselves, toughening ourselves. And hardening ourselves. That's what the Bible means by the hardness, stiffness of neck and the hardness of heart. Um, that's what creates that. We do that and we opt out for power with God. We want Him to answer our prayers. We want Him to, to be, um, the person who, who has power over our enemies and, and conquers everything. We opt for power. And then when he shows up with love, it is torture. Because it awakens our need, it awakens all the pain and the suffering that we have carried around with us and tried to suppress. It awakens uh, our vulnerability, our fear of getting hurt again. It awakens everything. And the tragic thing is that the wicked have come to the point where they prefer power to, to love and, and trust. And they can no longer respond to it. And, and so, I w- I believe that that love, which is embracing, God cannot love without embracing us, is actually to a person who resists it, it's lethal. So let's move on now to 34. And uh, Robert, you you read last, didn't you? Okay, so Zhang, would you please read uh, verses one? Well, uh, not war, verses one. Verse starting was verse five, and to verse seven. Thirty-four. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, unto the third and up to the fourth generation. So now God passes in front of him, proclaims his name, and his name is Yahweh. Not the Lord. Okay. Yahweh is the self-existent one, the eternality, the one who is from is the beginning and the end and everything in between. So he he passes in front and proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, and what follows next is a description of his face. So Moses can't see his face, so God describes it to him. This is also his name. Is there a justice in there? The word isn't there. God does not use justice as part of his character. 
Now we come to the second part, and I don't know what you have for visiting. Anybody have something different for visiting? Verse 7, the last or the middle part. Everybody has visiting? Okay. My version has punishing. But I prefer the word visiting. Uh, there is no adequate term, I believe, in English to encapsulate this word. This word has a lot of different meanings. In Akkadian, the counterpart, pakadu, uh, is a word that does not mean to punish at any time. And, and while the biblical passages that use it seem to imply punishing, I really think something else is going on. And I think visiting the iniquity upon the parents and upon their children to the third and fourth generation is talking about the consequences of sin from one generation to another, the natural consequences. Visiting the iniquity upon means to allow the iniquities of the fathers to come out in the children and unto the, and the, and the grandchildren. And we know from epigenetics now how real that is. That the parent, the, the decisions my grandparents made about diet and, and how, how they did their health affects me. And I'm actually genetically more like my grandparents than my parents. Uh, I, I can say that on, on the word of our geneticist here, PUC, <laughs> Brian Ness. So, that being the case, it it works out from generation to generation, and it's not God doing it; it's God allowing it. This is the closest you get to justice, but God doesn't use the term. So here is God ref, uh, reflecting his his glory to Moses. Moses sees only his backside. He hears what his face is like: compassionate full of loyalty and faithfulness. Actually, I would use the word full of kindness and faithfulness. Forgiving, one who forgives. The Hebrew is actually one who forgives every iniquity, every kind of sin. This is is one who is all of these things because most of these are participles, which indicate the, the action is on the person. It has to do with who he is. Now, let's go to the end of the chapter Verse 29. And Glow, would you read verses 29 to 35? And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them, with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. 
And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Here's here's the situation. He sees only the backside of God, God's wrath. And his face is shining so brightly, people can't look at him. And so he has to put a veil on so that they can endure his presence. That's the immensity of God's love. It it shines, it envelops, it embraces. And if we allow it to come in and embrace us on a daily basis, we can come to the place where we can see his face eventually. I, I, I think this is so key because all the sanctuary service was about kind of hiding God's face, protecting the people from it, because they were so far removed from his love that they could not function in the presence of God. This is very different than, than the Babylonians saw God's face, the divine face, the Malamu that came from, emanated from God. That was, uh, his fierceness as well as his love. It was, it was the combination of the whole thing and, and they saw it as, as just intense physical glory. They did not see it as a, a part of a divine character. Uh, and so consequently they were afraid of it. And truly, God's face is awesome. It is scary to those of us who are so far removed from love. But the more we, the more we embrace that love, the more we allow it to come in and embrace us, the more we can handle His face. And that's, that's why Jesus came to make the face of God known. Uh, so that we could see it without being consumed. Yeah, uh, I was just trying to find the verse in Revelation where eventually it says that when we're in heaven that um, we will see his face. Yeah, Revelation 21. Mm, okay, that's where it is. Um, yeah, that was a good. That's a good verse. Uh, I, I don't think know. it's Revelation 21:3 or 21:5. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed. There's there's um, an, another verse farther on, I think, that yeah, says what you want. Yeah, I too. Yeah, yeah. Um, where it talks about there, there is no temple. No, it's not there either. Well, uh, you, you'll have we'll have to look it up and, and sure. Right, but it doesn't have God's face in that verse. But they shall see His face, and their name shall be in their foreheads. Is that is that the text you're thinking of? Uh, yeah. I, I just know that there will be a kingdom let's, of priests. Let's try. Is it near the beginning of Revelation? Let's try. It's either Revelation. It might be Revelation 7 or it might be Revelation. Let's try 14. Nope. 
Revelation 22, verse 4. What is 22? Clear at the end. Aha, aha. They shall see his face and his name, his character will be in their foreheads. Their faces will reflect his character. So eventually we'll get to the place where we'll be able to, in heaven, eventually see his face. Well, we will have new bodies for one thing. Uh, Okay, let's have our closing prayer. Father in heaven, we we thank you that you are 100% love. And that when you are forced to let us go, it is not because you want to. It is not because you hate us. It is not because you have suddenly turned into a uh, God of, of intense anger and, and rejection, but only because we have chosen to leave your side. I thank you that you revealed yourself to Moses the way you are, and that we now have keys that we can use to unpack many of the perplexities of the Old Testament as we continue looking at atonement and salvation. Be with us during this journey and grant us the ability to know you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.